Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment. On this vote, the A's are 53, the nays are 47, and this nomination is confirmed. We'll have local reaction regarding the historic confirmation of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson's appointment to the Supreme Court, a history maker herself, Georgia's first black Supreme Court Chief Justice Leah Ward Sears, as well as Georgia State Law Professor Tanya Washington will offer their reflection. And speaking of Georgia State, the University's Center for Studies on Africa and its Diaspora is presenting a financial literacy program for residents in the Summer Hill neighborhood. We'll find out what that's all about. Plus, when will those gas prices start to go the other way, which is decrease? And is there any relief for you drivers and everybody else out there that's getting gas right now? We'll we'll, we'll figure it out somehow. All that's ahead. But first this, while Georgia's new mental health legislation will improve access to care, it left out some people. Georgia's growing immigrant population. Emily Will Pearson has more from policy analysts who say there's still... There can still be more to fix it. When the mental health parity bill was introduced, it included multilingual and multicultural competency requirements for mental health counselors dispatched to emergency calls. But lawmakers later removed that language. Crystal Munoz is the immigration policy analyst at the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. So it's important for the co-responders to understand and be able to communicate with the person who is having this mental health crisis in order to keep them from being incarcerated, which is, you know, one of the goals that is supposed to come out of this legislation. In a report from the Institute, the nonprofit suggests in future sessions, lawmakers maximize the potential of the law by adding back these measures. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. In other news, Wellstar Health System says its East Point Medical Center will stop offering inpatient beds or an ER. Lily Oppenheimer reports East Point officials worry about what it means to lose their only full-service hospital. Wellstar says starting May 6th, Atlanta Medical Center South will instead operate as a primary and rehabilitative care center 24-7. CEO Candace Saunders tells WABE the facility averages 140 ER visits a day, but only about seven result in an actual hospital admission. But for residents in need of critical care, miles mean life or death. Wellstar's next closest hospital is in Atlanta's Old Fourth Ward, about eight miles north. East Point Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram tells WABE she's meeting with Wellstar leaders next week. Lily Oppenheimer, WABE News. And a programming note, the city of East Point Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram will be a guest next week on Closer Look to discuss concerns about the medical center, as well as other issues, including public safety and housing affordability. And finally... Ladies and gentlemen, Braves legend, Chipper Jones. Uh, they could have used Chipper last night. The world champion Atlanta Braves welcomed one of their own as Chipper Jones threw out the first pitch at Truist Park last night during the Braves' opening day ceremony. Sadly, the Braves lost to the Cincinnati Reds 6-3, but there will be more celebrating throughout this weekend, including the world champion's ring ceremony Saturday at the ballpark. Gates open at 4 p.m. It'll be chilly, so dress warm. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cf 
greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Yes, it was another historic moment for the nation's high court, as you heard earlier. The Senate's final vote that confirmed Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court by a vote of 53 to 47. Now, Judge Jackson will be the first black woman, the first public offender on the high court, and she will join later. She will join later when Justice Breyer officially steps down at the end of the current term in June. So I want to welcome in someone who knows a little bit about being the first to get their reaction and reflection. Leah Ward-Sears is the former Chief Justice of the Georgia Supreme Court, serving on the court from 1992 until June of 2009. And Justice Sears, as I said, became the court's Chief Justice in June of 2005. Also from Georgia State University, Tanya Washington, Professor of Law, specializing in civil liberties, civil procedure, education law, and legal history. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much, Rose. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you and everybody else. All right. Well, Justice. It's great to be here. All right. Thank you. And Tanya, we are, Professor Washington, we appreciate you taking the time. I understand you and the family are taking a little vacation, but you're pulling over to talk to us. So we appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Justice Sears, let me start with you because someone who's certainly familiar with being the first, reflect on this moment in American history right now. Um. I mean, it's emotional. It's uh, something I never expected to see in my lifetime. I'm pleased. Um, this has been a very, very long relay race, you know, and we the, we still have much work to be done. You know, she went through um, a lot to get confirmed. Um, she is extremely well qualified. She deserves this. In fact, the country deserves this kind of diversity on the court. I never thought I would see this many women on the court, uh, two African-Americans, this kind of African-American jurist, a woman with with children and all that kind of thing, family and all that. I'm I'm thrilled. Mm. I couldn't be happier. Professor Washington, last week on the program, along with another professor from UGA, Professor Sonia West, we talked about the significance of the nomination, and now there is a confirmation. Your thoughts? I mean, just to hear our first black woman vice president, right, call the vote on our first black woman justice, I think says it all. Hmm. This, this is just, it's its an incredible, incredible moment, and as as Sears said, it's an incredible moment for the nation, right? Because of what it reflects is that we are making progress toward being that more perfect union that assert as our identity. This is this is evidence of that. Just but, but if I could just ahead. say, we aren't there yet. <laughs> we have a no, long no. way to go. But and I know, <laughs> yeah. But but. It's it's good. You've got to savor these moments. Yeah. Justice Sears. Absolutely. Yeah. Justice Sears, I recall on another occasion you said on this program, you said, Rose, I have the battle scars to prove the discrimination I faced throughout my judicial c- career. And while some and that was what you said, but while some I, may, I, I, I mean it, I meant it. I know you no, did. No, I, mean, I know. Okay, okay. And that's where I'm right. going with this because yeah, okay. while some may believe it doesn't matter now, the actions of the conservative Republicans during the hearing was something. I'm let y'all pick it up from here. Well, I mean, it was something. And then you'll be expected to act like it didn't happen. You know, you just keep going, you know, as if it, as if it didn't have a, a major impact on you. And she will. She will have to, you know, you saw her during the hearing. She mm-hmm. had to maintain, stay dignified. You know, you don't want to have a chip on your shoulder. You can't have a chip on your shoulder. You can't be that angry black woman. Oh, no, you can never be that. And so, the, you know, I was thinking about it getting into my car yesterday. Mm-hmm. The job has just started. I mean, she... She's been through hell. She even had to go through a lot just to get her degrees and all that. 
but the job's just started. She, she's going to be, he have, she needs to pick up that pen. She's going to be dissenting a lot, I think, and, and having to, you know, defend her dissents. Really? Oh, of course. I mean, that she's in a, I don't know, I don't like to use the terms conservative, liberal, and all that, because I think people are a lot more complicated than that. But let's just use those terms for right now. She is going to be in a, uh, she's a black woman in a, a, a liberal minority, and the conservatives are getting stronger and stronger on that court. She will be dissenting a lot. Professor Washington reflected then for a moment on what Justice Sears just said. Do you agree with that? I do, and um, fortunately, she will have her sister justices um, to support her. Um, I, I don't think she'll be alone in some of those dissents. Um, the battle scars are there um, to get to this point at every stage as a black woman, she has had to uh, defend herself and assert her qualifications for the various positions, impressive opportunities that she's had. And so I think she's up to the task, but it was, and I, I shared this with you last week when we spoke about this, it was triggering and traumatizing for black women who have endured the same kinds of racial discrimination to witness the antics of the uh, Republican senators during that nomination process. I think it was unbecoming of their position as, senate, as senators, and it was unbecoming of the proceedings themselves. And it continued yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just... Um, I think they've revealed themselves to be unprofessional and these kinds of attacks, uh, you know, persist. And, and, and we are all too familiar with them Speak- as, as the reality that black women experience. And to that, Professor Washington, in that opinion piece after Judge Brown Jackson's Senate hearing, you wrote, quote, Judge Jackson should not have to endure the disrespect on full display at her confirmation hearing and black women shared the trauma of every expression of it. Absolutely. I mean, we watched it with Professor Anita Hill. We watched it with um, Condoleezza Rice when she appeared before the 9-11 Commission. We've watched it with our first black first lady, Michelle Obama, and with our first black vice president. I mean, black women are treated this way in public spaces, and part of it is strategic to remind us of our place and to discourage others of us from wanting to occupy these spaces from which we've been historically excluded. But it doesn't work because when we show up the way Justice Jackson showed up, what that communicates to other black women is you belong here, just right. like I do. Right. Justice here, but it's, it's, it is unfair that you have oh, to absolutely. climb. I know, I know that you have to climb such a mountain to prove, always proving that you belong. That's... Yeah. That that's unfair, and it it doesn't it hasn't stopped, uh, won't stop in my lifetime. But of course, I'm little older than both of you, so <laughs> I I know it's not going to stop in my lifetime. But but uh, but I've seen a lot of progress, and and that's a good thing. Well, Justice Sears, let's stay with that uh, before we wrap up in terms of progress. But and I think I might have had this conversation with both of you before. We still see that in the whole judicial in terms of careers, we still see a a small percentage of 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 black folks becoming lawyers. You know, it's 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 the disparity is overwhelming. What do you what is the what is the progress then? At, what does this do then? What does her confirmation now do in terms of increasing the pipeline, increasing the, the candidate pool in the pipeline as it relates to the judicial careers? Yeah, I hope that it'll encourage more people. Uh, more a much more diverse bar which we don't have yet you know and and the other thing rose is this this is interesting there are uh you know there it's lawyers are like doctors so there are heart surgeons and then there are are family doctors and they're all very important but what i have found in my 40 years of being at the bar is there aren't enough black lawyers, fine, but there really, really aren't a lot of sort of the, those in the elite categories, the 
which which she was, you know, she's on she's a appellate jurist on one of the highest appellate courts, mm-hmm. and it's it gets even smaller when you go from family lawyers on up to the elite bar, big law firms, the elite bar law firms, that kind of thing. I mean, I'm the only, uh, I think I'm the oh, I'm the only black woman partner in my law firm, mm-hmm. you know, and that's not unusual. You know, in a fairly large white law firm, I think there are only three percent black women, three to five percent black mm-hmm. women lawyers in law firms of my type. Wow. So, uh, Professor Washington, in terms of getting more folks, I I hope that her distinguished nomination and the the manner in which she responded to undignified behavior will operate as a magnet for black people to apply to law schools because if we don't have black law students, we don't have black judges, we don't have black law professors, we don't have black um, district attorneys and prosecutors, we don't have black corporate lawyers. Like we need all of that. And yeah, it right. starts with black people applying to law schools. And judges like Judge Sears and Justice Jackson provide, um, they, they confirm for people that this is possible. And so I hope that is what will inspire um, more Black people and Black women in particular to choose to attend uh, law schools across the United States, and certainly at Georgia State University. <laughs> Right. And, 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 to, and to right and, and to know that you can go to the very highest levels in the bar. Yeah. The Absolutely. highest levels. Wow. Former Chief Justice of the Georgia Supreme Court, Leah Ward Sears and Georgia State Professor of Law, Tanya Washington. Great comp- conversation. Thank you both for taking time. I would appreciate it. You two have thank paved the way for a lot of people as well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Take care. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Enjoy your vacation or whatever. <laughs> I will. <laughs> okay. Bye bye. And Closer Look continues here on WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Some of you who took our Paycheck to Paycheck survey, which you still can do, it's online at wabe.org slash paycheck, indicated financial literacy programs would be helpful or beneficial towards establishing some type of financial stability. But it does take more than just maybe taking a class or a workshop. Well, Georgia State is in the midst of a financial literacy pilot program, and it's from the center. It's from its Center for Studies on Africa and its Diaspora, called the Place and Race Program. It has a goal overall to improve and create sustainable generational economic outcomes. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Elizabeth J. West, professor of English and the John B. and Elena Diaz version. Almost distinguished chair in English letters at the university. She also serves as co-director of academics for the center. Also, Odutin Gordon, a compliance financial business partner and grant manager at GSMA Foundation. We'll learn more about that organization in just a moment. And we welcome Sheena, a current participant in the program. Welcome to you all. Everybody can unmute. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for having me. All right. Hey, before we take a deeper dive in the program, Professor West, I want to start with you because I know for some listeners are saying, what is this Georgia State Center for Studies on Africa and its diaspora? What's it all about? It's fairly new. Uh, It is, Rose. We are coming upon our second year. It was founded, um, uh, oddly enough, at at the hallmark of uh, the COVID crisis. So it turned out to be, um, for lack of a better word, an ideal because it was, I think, needed for that moment. Um, So the the center uh, focuses on um, aspects of the African diaspora, and that's across um, academic, 
uh, you know, as well as public facing kinds of initiatives, uh, you know, and concerns. And that's what uh, leads us to um, the financial literacy program. Before I, I, I bring in Mr. Gordon, how did the Place and Race program come about? Because this is all part of a bigger initiative, the Financial Literacy Park, correct? Yes, yes, it is. When we, when we founded CSAT in 2020, one of our key visions was to develop programming and partnerships to make an impact in Atlanta communities. So one of the earliest goals uh, we established was to promote um, uh, promote and advance STEM education and readiness for uh, students in underserved Atlanta communities. And uh, it may seem an odd thing to jump from, you know, STEM to financial literacy, but in terms of our own vision, we see it as a natural connection. Uh, because if, if we want to if we want to promote um, advancements for students, it's important that we connect that to progress and success for parents and adults. And of course, one of the key challenges in underserved communities is, mm-hmm. uh, is economic. Mm-hmm. And so financial literacy, you know, we, we see that as a beginning um, for, you know, for the larger uh, place and race uh, program. Odutin Gordon, you have a background in community outreach initiatives. I imagine you feel the same way that the professor talked about and the importance of a financial literacy program and its benefit. Most definitely. Uh, It's a great need. It's just something that's just not taught in the schools. And if you ask most people in the streets, they don't have a lot of general information about their 401k and investments, uh, especially the minority communities in all the major cities of Atlanta. Now, let me ask you this, because this is a, a pilot program, and you all are offering this program to residents of the nearby Summer Hill neighborhood. Why this community, Mr. Gordon? Well, the grants were structured in a way to identify um, a special demographic that was underserved. Mm-hmm. And the grant was to focus on the parents of the marriage action cluster. I think Ms. West could talk more on why this particular location was selected. Professor? In, in large part, it's because we had to identify, you know, when you're going to do a pilot, you, you have to kind of hone in very purposefully, um, uh, you know, on a, on a, a contained group. And um, the Maynard Jackson um, High School cluster uh, was really, um, uh, you know, for I think for all of us in the room, it was just an obvious place to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, it sits in um, proximity to Georgia State University. Uh, our College of Education, uh, in fact, we had collaborators, uh, our colleagues in uh, that college who helped us with the larger place and race uh, vision. And, and so they have, um, many of our colleagues there have been in this area, you know, working and partnering with the schools in the area. Uh, so it just uh, it just seemed the most natural uh, beginning for us. So what were the requirements other than being in that cluster, just parents of students there or just to be in that that, that cluster, that APS cluster? Uh, um, parents and grandparents or uh, surrogate parents. Yes, that, that's in that cluster. Um, so this uh, this initial uh, pilot is the start to that. And we hope to, in the next phase, you know, kind of make our way uh, into the community, reaching out, um, uh, you know, more and more extensively uh, in the community. And how many households are currently now in the program or how many participants are in the program right now? We we enlisted 50 uh, to start. That was our our target. Um, And and we you know, part of the pilot is. Um, to kind of take a look at what the ideal size, you know, for each six-week program session will will be. So uh, this first phase is to really see, um, you know, start with that ideal 50 
to mm-hmm. get a sense of whether 50 is just right or whether it would work, you know, in, in smaller numbers, because we really want it to be a personal experience for participants as well. Mr. Gordon, are these online workshops and forums? How is this actually working? Well, we did a hybrid approach. The majority of the participants were online, but we did offer, with consideration to COVID, um, we did offer about 15 slots available to participants to come on site at Georgia State. So they're coming into, and and are they... Is, it's almost like a classroom setting, obviously. So they have someone who's talking to them. And, and uh, it's like a curriculum in a sense, too? It is. Um, but it's also like a curriculum, but also more like a workshop. Mm-hmm. So we had a variety of professionals come in from a variety of different fields. And we taught the basics. You know, we, we first assessed um, what was the knowledge base of all the participants, what what did they want to learn or what were the needs were? And then the professionals came in and based on how they, re- they responded to what we were teaching, we actually adjusted the curriculum in mm-hmm. midstream throughout the six sessions to address the needs of the participants. I want to bring Sheena into the conversation. Here's my question for you. Prior to participating in this financial literacy program, how would you assess that? Did you have a pretty good hold on managing your money, or did you definitely need some type of financial literacy program? Um, I definitely needed some type of financial literacy program. Uh, it was right on time <laughs> uh, for me, uh, to be honest. Um, being a single mother of four girls um, and then trying to work, trying to have my own business, I need more of a better blueprint of how to do things and the ins and outs, and that's really what I got when I went and filled in a lot of blanks for me. You said it filled in a lot of blanks. What areas were you would you say you struggled with in terms of? Um, Go ahead. Yes, ma'am. Um, one of those things was credit, um, getting my credit back on track, knowing how to do that. Um, a lot of times now, you know, everybody's charging for those services. And if you're already trying to figure out where, you know, how to get your money going and stuff like that, you need, you know, somebody like, you know, with this program, that's where that program came in for me. I don't have the money to pay for a financial literacy program. And so as soon as I heard about it, I jumped on it. I signed up. What have you been learning? Um, um, and I like, uh, well, as far as building my credit, um, you know, when you're trying to get things deleted off your credit, how to get those things deleted off my credit. Um, and then I had one instance where I paid something, but I really didn't, uh, they didn't take it off of my credit, right? Mm-hmm. Although they said they would. So during the program, I learned that I can have a pay to delete letter um, and have that done and sent and sent to me before I make that payment uh, so that thou know that it can be removed. So that was uh, definitely helpful for me with me trying to send in my letters and stuff like that. So that was good for me. Let me ask you this, if you, and I always say this, and I, I think I should be honest, because my father would always say, you know, if you, if you listen to me, I will get you to where you need to be. Now, I know, goodness, I needed some financial literacy, something when I was in my 20s, when I was yes, even in my 30s. Yes. So you, do you tell folks, hey, look, this is something I recommend to you all. If you don't have it, you should get it. Yes, from day one, I've been doing it. I've been telling um, even my my daughters, I have a 23-year-old, I have one that's going to be 18. And being that I didn't learn it, then, you know, I'm like trying to pass that information to them. Like, this is what you do, you know, and stuff like that. And it's been helpful to them as well, um, you know, being that they're growing older so that they won't be, not, be out here making the same mistakes I did with my credit and stuff like that. Well, if we just only listen to our parents, right? Mr. Gordon, when you, <laughs> <Yes>. hear, <laughs> when you hear Sheena, someone who's in this, program this is this is what it's all about right most definitely it's um, we really wanted to see impact uh we had you know when we were trying to create the curriculum you know there are lots of curriculums out there that just simply teach teach the information and just simply leave but we want to really make sure that in addition to just simply teaching the the curriculum and just giving a test towards the end we had volunteers calling all the participants every week so because everyone had like a different um, different focus. Some people it was credit, others it was the mortgage, others it was um, how to create a, a budget. So by doing that, we really want to make sure that we identified at least one or two 
main financial concerns that everyone had. In addition to, you know, giving them some goals to accomplish after the curriculum. Mm -hmm. But um, when we first started, we did set out to at least resolve one or two um, financial issues that, that all the participants were having. Given that, and we've done so much of this in our Paycheck to Paycheck series, where we're focusing on the fact that so many households in this nation are considered unbank or underbank, are you all addressing the importance of, because there are barriers for folks to even get a checking account. Do you all have so, resources? You have the curriculum, but you have resources to help some of these households as well. Right. So we first start off by showing how to create a budget, and we presented a variety of different ways to create a budget. But then after we had the budget session, we had about two professionals come in to give the participants the, the resources to like actually, so the budget that we discussed was the 50-30 um, budget where ideally 50% goes towards essential spending, 30% goes to personal, and 20% goes to savings. Now, this budget is not achievable for a lot of people. Absolutely. So yeah. we then, so we then um, presented like, so a person, um, we, well, I like to call her a super, super, super couponer presenter. She gave them a presentation on how to spend less money. And then we had one of the volunteers from Marketed Price. She came in to give them a presentation on ways you can make more money. So every single thing that we talked, we, we showed the participants that it, it is actually possible. So we give them the tools to make more money, spend less money. In addition, if saving 20% is not possible at first, um, we talked about, you know, um, creating like a roadmap, you know, starts mm -hmm. starting small, the importance of a 401k and the impact of you starting to invest a little bit now, how much of an impact is going to have when you're ready to retire much later. Professor West, uh, in just a moment at following this segment, we're going to talk about gas prices and, and inflation and all that. So this literacy, financial literacy program is right on time. I have a question from a listener who wants to know if you all would envision a future where you would work with one of the local guaranteed income programs as well. Or did we just give we, you all an idea? Um, I think we'd be be open to that. Um, um, we it, we have a website. We have contact information. Uh, as long as they fund it, is that now? That's the other question too. The listener needs to know that you got to get funding for it, right? Yeah. Well, and 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 this is why it's important to talk about this first stage of the larger program. You know, this this is um, you know, this is part of a lar larger vision, and we are you know especially um, appreciative of American Family Insurance actually for you know for stepping out and supporting us to, to pilot this. Um, they consider this, you know, they have their um, um, $100 million plus initiative uh, commitment to uh, uh, improving quality of life for communities. And so they are, um, you know, putting resources out here for this, for the very kind of work that we're doing here. You heard what Sheena had to say, but what other type of assessments or how do you gauge or even track, you know, that the financial literacy program is is meeting its intended mission here? So right now, the, um, the curriculum is still ongoing. And towards the end, we will do an assessment, assessment survey based to kind of get an understanding of um, how much they have learned. But also, we're going to give all the participants a list of five things to do um, before uh, they complete the program. And first, have a 401k or a retirement account or be investing. Second, have a path towards building an emergency fund. Mm -hmm. Third, have addressed a, an additional cost-saving measure. Fourth, uh, at least create a budget or be engaged in spend tracking mechanisms. For example, we highly recommend they use the Mint app, for example. And lastly, fifth, um, start to run their credit report on a regular basis. So out of those five things, 
we ask them to pick three mm-hmm. out of those things. Now, and also, because, you know, we have to address this, too. You can have all these metrics and, and Sheena can have these five, maybe all five, maybe three. And some folks can have three. But also, too, you you know, you, we have to acknowledge that income inequality is a major <laughs> aspect in this, too. As someone wrote to us for our Paycheck to Paycheck series, they said, you know, look, Rose, it is hard to save money when you are in debt. And it's hard to save money when your income is I'm a low wage income is what they said. So those are other things we need to address. And we hopefully we think we do a good job of addressing that here on this program. But Sheena, I'll ask you those five. You don't have to tell us which three, but are you able, you think, to meet some of those assessments that they've given you all? Yes, definitely. Um, you know, uh, they gave, like I said, they gave a good blueprint of how to get started, um, how to look at your paycheck, how to break it down. Um, we were able to print off our bank statements and sort of look at how we've been spending our money and stuff like that, what it's been going to. So that 50, 30, 20 rule has been really helpful. Um, and, you know, help me see my money, where it's going and where I can apply other things. Um, even with savings, um, we learned that sometimes it's better to have the money coming out before you actually get your money you know so you don't see that money and so have it going to a separate savings account and that has helped me I did start that um and so I don't see that money it just go over there and um other than that I keep going that way I have something like they say some kind of savings if emergency happens with having four girls you never know what's gonna happen you never know so <laughs> yes and then you know my daughter's about to graduate prom so you know also is the reason why I was able to take this program because she goes to the main cluster so you know it brought everything together for us in a lot of ways. Sheena, I want to give you the last word on this. Where do you hope to be financially in maybe, let's say, two years? In two years, I really hope that my business has been growing. My business is growing. Um, I'm able to have that home for my girls, have a home for them. And so that's what, and they gave me hope on that. Cause I was like, Lord, you know, I, you know, they, it make it so hard when it comes to getting a home, you know, it make it think, make it think it is impossible for mm-hmm. you, but they, you know, gave me, you know, good, you know, um, feedback on that and how to do FHA and different options that you can do. Um, even if, you know, you're not where you think you should be. So it helped out a lot. Hey, y'all need to help me get a home, Professor and Mr. Gordon. (laughs) (laughs) Elizabeth J. West, Professor of English at Georgia State University and co-director of the Center for Studies on Africa and its Diaspora. Odutin Gordon, a compliance financial business partner and grant manager at GSMA Foundation. Sheena, a current participant in the financial literacy program. We'll have links to on our website to y'all's website for more information and just real quickly, Professor, will you all be able to ex- extend this to other parts of the city someday? That's that's, that's what we're working on, uh, Rose. That's why I'm I'm talking up our sponsor now because I I want to I, I want that good feeling to uh, continue with them. As the kids say, go get that money. That's right. <laughs> Thank y'all so much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Here's a question. Hey, how about those gas prices? I know y'all are giving me a side eye right now. Can you imagine, though, paying $6 per gallon to fill up your gas tank? Uh huh. I bet y'all are looking at the electric vehicle now, aren't you? Well, that's what some drivers in Los Angeles were paying when L.A. became the first major city in the U.S. to reach an average gas price of $6 or more a few weeks ago. Ooh, now, L.A.'s average, which now sits above $5 per gallon, is still higher than a national average for a gallon, which sits at $4.15. Well, here locally, Georgians are feeling a little bit of relief, and I do mean a little. After Governor Brian Kemp signed a law suspending Georgia's motor fuel tax through the end of May, and Georgia's average of a gallon of gas sits now at $3.81. Woo, that's according to AAA. We should all be so happy. Well, let's ask... Frank Macarola, he joins me now. He's about the current state of gas prices and what's next. Frank is the American Petroleum Institute Senior Vice President of Policy, Economics, and Regulatory Affairs. I'm pretty sure he's been busy of late. Frank, thanks so much for taking time. We appreciate it. Sure, Rose. Thanks for having me on. How are you? You have an electric vehicle? I'm fine. You have an electric vehicle? <laughs> no, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> how, how much are you paying for gas? 
Uh, well, in Washington, D.C., it's around $4.20. Uh, I'm, I'm, right now, I'm here in Texas. It's significantly lower. Really? It's uh, under under $4. Closer to where, closer to you in, uh, in, in Atlanta. Are more folks taking yeah. a metro in D.C. with the gas prices? Well, it, it's just good to have more folks out. I mean, yeah. we've been uh, shut down for so long. And we were we were slow to come out of the pandemic, so it's great to have people back on the metro, back on the road, uh, back at work. Um, you know, it's a kind of a new sense of normal in 2022. But gas prices are tough right now. And listen, we should note that whenever there is some instability, or conflict, or war taking place in another part of the world, we know that it can affect. Everything, goods and services, obviously, we know with, with gas prices here. Um, but I just want to back up for a moment because for listeners who may not be familiar with the American Petroleum Institute, uh, just kind of give a little insight to what you all are doing. Sure. So we're the uh, largest trade association for uh, the oil and natural gas industry. We're, we're headquartered in Washington, D.C., but we have offices around the country and actually globally. So we, we do really two major things. One, we're an advocacy organization. So we advocate for public policies that support a strong and viable oil and natural gas industry in the United States. We also uh, promote safety across the industry uh, globally. And then we're, we're also a standard setting organization. API was actually founded in mm-hmm. 1919 as a standard setting organization. We set standards and certifications for the oil and gas industry. One one area where you'll see that you, you go to a, a service station and you see the uh, motor oil, you turn it around, you'll see the API certification on the motor oil. So, uh, you know, API has many hats for the industry, um, but you know, we we basically uh, are an advocacy organization in support of of our industry. I want to get your opinion on this, and, and you can give it through your own lens or as a representative of the Institute here, because President Biden re- recently said, you know, look, with these skyrocketing gas prices that are due to the current war happening in the Ukraine, and that it is time now for America to reduce its dependence on fossil fuel. I want to play a clip for you. Today, I'm authorizing the release of one million barrels per day for the next six months, over 180 million barrels. For the strategic from the from the strategic petroleum reserve this is a wartime bridge to increase oil supply until production ramps up later this year and it is by far the largest release of our net of our national reserve in our history it'll provide historic amount of supply for a historic amount of time a six months bridge to the fall and we'll use the revenue from selling the oil now to restock the strategic petroleum reserve when prices are lower. So we'll be ready. We'll be ready for future emergencies. Folks, I've coordinated this release with allies and partners around the world. Already, I've commi- we have commitments from other countries to release tens of millions of additional barrels into the market. Together, our combined efforts will supply well over a million barrels a day. Nations coming together to deny Putin the ability to weaponize his energy resources against American families and families and democracies around the world. Frank, I know there's someone listening saying, "Okay, that's great. I hear what the president is saying in terms of the future. But what about now? What does all that mean for me now when I go to fill up? Where's my relief? You know, I, I think first off, it's important that the president has recognized that we have a uh, supply and demand imbalance that's made, been made worse by Putin's invasion into Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Russia's, uh, you know, very large producer, the largest exporter of oil in the world, a very large producer of, of oil and natural gas. And what Putin has done over several years is use energy as a weapon against the people of Europe. They really are reliant on on Russia. So the market volatility that has been created by this coupled with the market volatility that we had going into this invasion has created a, a problem at the pump for the, uh, the average American. Mm-hmm. We, we roared back on oil demand coming out of the pandemic, but supplies have not kept pace with that increase. And so that's, 
that's the price situation that we find ourselves in now. Your question is great. So what do we do now right. versus the long term? You know, in the short term, there aren't a lot of short term fixes to this. The energy system is very complex. It takes time to increase supply. We are seeing supplies come back in the United States. So this latest week, we had 11.8 million barrels per day of production in the U.S. Uh, right before the pandemic, we had about 13. But we are headed in the right direction. Uh, the rig count, which is the count of oil rigs that are out mm -hmm. uh, producing out in the field, that's gone up by nearly 200 in the past year. Uh, up to over 500 oil rigs. Uh, we have record high production in the Permian Basin here in Texas. And the EIA, which is the independent analyst for the Department of Energy, estimates we're going to have an extra million barrels of oil of production in 2022. So we are seeing it come back, but that's not going to provide the relief immediately. Um, and so uh, the most important thing we need to focus on is increasing that 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 supply mm -hmm. um and you know that that's that's our main focus as an industry and i and you know i'm going to work with the government to make sure that they're uh they're on board as well let me ask you this because when we came into the this conversation you talked about how in texas the gas prices were a little bit lower or somewhere around here in atlanta and, and i think this listener has a good question in terms of we know about la but why would it why would it cost six dollars in L.A. and, and four dollars here in, in Atlanta? Is it the su supply and demand or is it just region or is it just because California likes to be high in everything that they do? <laughs> <laughs> that's a That's a great question. Um, there are several factors that uh, go into the prices that we pay at the pump. The, the major uh, factor is the price of crude oil that's set uh, in the global markets and um, so the price of crude oil is high. It's reflected in the price of gasoline at the pump at your local station. But there are other factors, including um, the cost of transportation um, from a refinery to a terminal and ultimately to a gas station. There are uh, state taxes. So in addition to the federal tax for gasoline, there are state taxes and states vary uh, in how much uh, they charge in their uh, gasoline tax. There are different types of uh, blends mm -hmm. um, for both seasonal as well as regional. And so that um, will add additional costs at the refinery and ultimately additional costs in the gasoline. Um, and then, you know, policies do matter as well. Sure. And so, you know, California's had uh, restrictive policies uh, on, um, on specifically on uh, air. And so, uh, you know, requiring uh, additional costs on refineries, all of those factors come into play. Uh, but the major component is the global price of crude oil. That's the major input. You may not want to talk about this, but I'm going to ask you, and I made a little bit of a joke about it. But, I mean, do you think that these continuing gas prices might get some consumers to start looking more at EVs? Electric vehicles? Well, you, you know, it, it's it's certainly possible. But one of the interesting things, though, is we're not alone in this increase sure. in inflation. Uh, we have eight percent broad-based inflation across the economy. It's it's uh, and it it is uh, not transitory as the as the administration had hoped. This is sort of long term, and it and it appears to be broad-based. It's being felt across the economy. So the component parts that are going into electric vehicles are also seeing this. There are labor shortages in the economy. There are supply chain constraints in the economy. Um, there are operational costs that have increased across the economy. Um, so it's it's probably being felt there as well. Um, you know, we you've heard about uh, automobiles, not just electrics, mm -hmm. but um, internal combustion engine vehicles that are having problems obtaining chips mm -hmm. uh, that that go into the cars. And so that's uh, slowing down the production of automobiles and increasing the costs. So it just seems like everywhere Americans turned, um, you know, a lot of this is the uh, hangover from the from from the pandemic. Uh, but it really uh, has created a lot of uh, constraints on people and has impacted the economy significantly. So, Frank, is is the solution, the biggest solution on all, all of this is that 
the war in Ukraine just needs to stop. And that will once and, and I know and let's be really clear, lives are so much more important than barrels of Absolutely. oil and gas or whatever. We realize that. But is a solution here for what folks are feeling at the pump here is that that war needs to end and we will see gas prices return. Is that pretty much what you've been telling me this last 15 minutes? Well, I mean, that, the, look, the war in Ukraine, that's the ending is the solution to a lot of things. I mean, I remember as I was young, um, the, the Berlin Wall coming down and, and we've had 30 years of uh, democratic Europe and a cooperative cooperative relationship between the United States and our allies in Europe. And that's what Putin is putting at at risk. That's what he's threatening right now is the you know global order that the United States worked so hard for after the Second World War. Um, it's very it's it's tragic. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think the United States and Europe has acted in tandem to impose sanctions on Russia, hopeful that it it works and that it brings um, some uh, peaceful settlement to what's been a terrible situation. Mm. Um, but it also is a reminder of how important energy is to our lives. You know, for generations, yeah. we've heard presidents of both parties talk about how it's so important that we not be reliant on foreign sources, particularly hostile regimes, to get our energy. And now we're seeing that up close in Europe. Um, the effects of that it's awful and it it you know it, it should be a commitment for all americans that that we need to produce our own resources here in the united states well, and that's a and we also we also need an all of the above strategy on energy we need to utilize everything we have from renewables to oil and gas uh to nuclear that's a whole um, nother conversation i need to bring you back for that frank <laughs> <laughs> gotta bring right. you all back for that to see where you see where y'all fall, fall in line with that if we've been talking about the current state of gas prices and whether drivers will soon see relief at the pump frank thanks so much for taking the time i really appreciate it good conversation we'll bring you back thank you rose this was great i appreciate it And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, you know it's always online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.